Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Diecast Movie Podcast. Thank you for joining us for episode 209. We are a movie podcast. We do movie discussions where the genre is picked by the role of the die, and we also do interviews as well. In this episode, my dad, Stephen, is joined by Bill Mize to discuss his pick of Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now on to the episode. Well, Costello, I'm going to New York with you. You know, Bucky Harris, the Yanks manager, gave me a job as coach for as long as you're on the team. Look, Abbott, if you're the coach, you must know all the players. I certainly do. Well, you know, I, mean, I never met the guys, so you'll have to tell me their names, and then I'll know who's playing on the team. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you their names, but you know, strange it may seem, they give these ballplayers nowadays very peculiar names. You mean funny names? Strange names, pet names, like Dizzy Dean and... His brother Daffy. Daffy Dean. I'm their French cousin. French? Gouffet. Gouffet Dean, oh, I see. <laughs> well, let's see, we have on the bags, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find I out. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Are you the manager? Yes. You're going to be the coach, too? Yes. And you know the fellow's name? Oh, I should. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first baseman. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? Yes. <laughs> Look, you got a first baseman? Certainly. Who's playing first? That's right. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. <laughs> All I'm trying to find out is the fellow's name on first base. Who? The guy that gets the That's money. That's it. Who gets the money on he first base? He does, every dollar. Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Who's what? Yes. <laughs> That. Look, all I want to know is when you sign up the first baseman, how does he sign his name to the Who? contract? The guy. Who? How does he sign his That's name? That's how he signs it. Who? Yes. <laughs> all I'm trying to find out is what's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. Well, don't change the players. Right? I'm not changing nobody. Take it easy, buddy. I'm only asking you who's the guy on first base? That's right. Okay. All right. <laughs> No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. Oh, he's on third. We're not talking about him. Now, let's be honest. Now, how did I get on third base? Why, you mentioned his name. If I mentioned a third baseman's name, who did I say is playing third? No, who's playing first? What's on first? What's on second? I don't know. He's on third. There I go, back on third again. Now, who's playing third base? Why do you insist on putting who on third base? What am I putting on third? Now, what is on second? You don't want who on second? Who is on first? I don't know. Third, third base? Look, <laughs> you got outfield? Sure. The left fielder's name. Why? I just thought I'd ask. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. Then tell me who's playing left field. Who is playing first? I'm not. Stay out of the infield. <laughs> What's the guy's name in left field? No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on who's second. Who's on first? I don't know. Third base. <laughs> and the left fielder's name? Why? Because. Oh, he's center field. Me, this field. Look, look, look. You got a pitcher on a team? Sure. The pitcher's name? Tamara. You don't want to tell me today? I'm telling you, then man. go ahead. Tamara. What time? What time what? What time tomorrow are you going to tell me who's pitching? Now, listen. Who is not pitching? I'll who break is... your arm, you say. Who's on first? <laughs> What's on second? I don't know. Third base. Got <laughs> a catcher? Certainly. The catcher's name. Today. Today. And Tamar's pitcher. Now you've got it. All we got is a couple of days on the well, team. <laughs> you know, I'm a catcher too. So they tell I me. I get behind the plate, do some fancy catching. Tamar's pitching on my team and a heavy hitter gets up. Yes. Now, the heavy hitter bunched the ball. When he bunched the ball, me being a good catcher, I'm going to throw the guy out of first base, so I pick up the ball and throw it to who? Now, that's the first thing you've said right. I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Yes. Now, who's got it? Naturally. <laughs> Look, if I throw the ball to first base, somebody's got to get it. Now, who has it? Naturally. 
Who? Naturally. Naturally? Naturally. So I pick up the ball and I throw it to natural. No, you don't. You throw the ball in a hole. Naturally. That's different. That's what I said. You're not saying that. I throw the ball in naturally. You throw it to who? Naturally. That's it. That's what I said. Listen, you ask me. I throw the ball to who? Naturally. Now, you ask me. You throw the ball to who? Naturally. That's it. Same as you. <laughs> don't change them around. Same as you. Go ahead. I throw the ball to who? Whoever it is drops the ball and the guy runs a second. Yes. Who picks up the ball and throws it to what? What throws it? I don't know. I don't know. Throws it back to tomorrow. Triple play. Yes. Another guy gets up and it's a long fly ball to be caused. Why? I don't know. He's on third and I don't give a darn. Well, what? I said I don't give a darn. Oh, that's our shortstop. How many? Come on. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the newest episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And we're going to do a special episode today. That's the reason I say it's special. I have had a person I've been wanting on this show for years now, years. And due to schedules and other things, him being so busy because he's just always doing so much darn good stuff out there. I finally got Bill Mize to join me, and we're going to be talking about his pick, Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll. But before we get into that, how you doing today, Bill? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Diecast podcast listeners and my good boy, Stephen Turk. Yeah, I take full responsibility for skirting you, avoiding you, running away from you, hiding from you, because we did plan this literally at least a year or two ago, several Monster Bashes ago, if we use Monster Bash as kind of a a measurement of time <laughs> back when I was doing my own podcast and several podcasts, I think, I think we, we initially for full disclosure, we, I initially chose Abbott and Costello meet the mummy because I was working on uh, the first season of monsters by the minute. And I did a nine hour deep dive into universal's 1932 mummy. I'm like, Oh, let's just keep the mummy vibe going. And then I actually watched Abbott and Costello meet the mummy. And, oh, gosh, it was just so painful. So it's their next to last movie. And, you know, poor Bud, poor Lou. They're just kind of going through the motions. You know, they're not they're not healthy. They're older. You know, it's not as easy to do vaudeville and slapstick and burlesque when you're in your late 50s, early 60s or whatever. So uh, thank you very much for allowing me to kind of cheat a little bit and pick a slightly different movie. I still wanted to go on the Abbott and Costello vibe, but uh, this one, much better. It's got our boy Boris Karloff in it. It's got Peter Gunn himself uh, in it. So I, I think this is a much better step up. It's still toward the twilight of their career, but it's still a really nice, typical Abbott and Costello movie that I'm sure people have enjoyed. I enjoyed all the Abbott and Costello movies growing up, watching them as a boy, you know, Same. It was, it was, I think for a while there, there was one channel that was doing the Abbott and Costello movie. And every week it was a different one. I think they did that for a year or two. So you got the road, basically all the ones that were out in rotation during the late seventies, early eighties, I got the pretty much. I think you're right. It was sold as like a TV package, you know, because you had your horror host packages, your shock theater packages, 
you know, there was always like an Abbott and Costello or, or I'm sorry, uh, Partridge Family, Brady Bunch kind of package that was put out there for, you know, back when you and I were growing up and dinosaurs ruled the earth, there were, you know, three or four major channels and there was your UHF channels. And that's where kind of the reruns lived. And uh, there was definitely an Abbott and Costello package that uh, I grew up with as well. And, uh, you, you know, I, it's just I always view Abbott and Costello through nostalgia goggles. You know, uh, sure, it doesn't age well. Could I show my daughter or my son, both of them in their early 20s, could I show them these movies? Would they enjoy them? Frankly, probably not. Uh, because it's a different time, it's a different generation, different things are popular. You know, there, there's short attention span theater now with TikTok and YouTube. So it's much more difficult to uh, to get other folks into Abbott and Costello. There was also the Three Stooges. You and I both grew up with the Three Stooges back in the day, and I adore them. And uh, that's another one where it's just like a different time. I'm, my nostalgia goggles are firmly on my head, and I embrace it, and I love it. I'm going to agree with part of what you said and disagree with part, and I, I can only we can only, I can only base it off my own children, and that is mm-hmm. when they were growing up, they were watching the Abbott and Costello movies because I had a, nice. a few of them on DVD or VHS back then. You know, it was when it was VHS going to the DVD, and mm-hmm. so they would see them at their own TV. Now they didn't see everything. But I did start them off properly, just like we started this episode off with before you came on, Bill, and the listeners already heard the classic who's on first, because I don't care who you are, what age you are. If you know baseball, even rudimentary, have an idea of the baseball thing, you will totally understand who's on first. Even if you don't, it's so awesome how the routine is so classic. And yes. that's why we had to yes. start this episode off of a bang. Cause I knew you were coming in and I can't just have something where we're just like, ah, we need a good opening act and what better than who's. I on love first. it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what makes, uh, you know, the one movie, uh, the name just flew out. I'm out of head, but it's the one where they basically do all their vaudeville moves. It's like the, it's, it's like the 1890s. It's kind of a timepiece for Abbott and Costello. And they basically just trot out all their vaudeville stuff, you know, and who's on first is absolutely, you know, the pinnacle, if not near the top of Abbott and Costello routines, but also great vaudeville routines in general, where there's always a focus on wordplay. You see that a lot in the Marx Brothers and, uh, you know, even the Three Stooges, you know, these are three acts that are classic comedy, but we forget that they were kind of late to the party when it came to film. So it's like, well, we're just going to throw some plot together that will tie your vaudeville routines together. And I think Abbott and Costello kind of have a advantage over the Marx Brothers. First, the Marx Brothers got their start a lot earlier than Abbott and Costello. So film was much more of a established art form with, uh, you know, in the 30s. You know, you can even see it in Dracula if you want to go back to the stage play comparison where they just kind of were filming things and the plot of the Marx brothers movies is a lot thinner. You just need to have Groucho start talking and then you bring Margaret Dumont on and she's the foil and, you know, uh, uh, Chico and Harpo come in for comedy relief. 
for lack of a better term. So I think that Abbott and Costello films are a little bit tighter. They, there's, it's still just an excuse for musical numbers, for you know, uh, some buffoonery, some slapstick. But I think the plots are a bit tighter. Uh, we'll talk about that more as we go forward with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Boris Karloff. But uh, there's still room for imp- there was still room for improvement when it came to plot, I guess. Why let plot get in the way of fun? You know, so it's exactly. And, and I agree. About, and you think about some of the best comedies; they do have a nice plot, but a lot of good comedies are solid with the the jokes that are evergreen. And I think that's the yes. thing we're talking about: a show, or a movie, or a group that you can pick. Pretty much most of their films, order order TV yes. series because they, they, their yes. TV series has recently been released. Um, season one came out uh, like a year or two ago. Season two is coming out um, this January two thousand twenty four at the end of January. So and and that they were replaying a lot of their classic routines, so it would be there. So yeah. people have that available, and I think it's just one of those things you could stick in. Anybody in the family can watch it and enjoy it. So you can have yes. a five-year-old to a 105-year-old, yes. and they're all going to be laughing. And the wordplay yes. is going to affect people at different stages. It can hit the five-year-old one way, and then the 50-year-old is going to be like getting some of the innuendos that are in yes. between yes. those little lines. And that's the great part about such a, a, a well, not, say, well-honed, well-honed, well-honed group. You know, their yeah. routines from Valdeville were yeah. so well done, so well rehearsed, so yeah. well practiced. By the time they got to around to filming it, Bud and Lou had probably done it thousands of times. You know, as we know, uh, when it comes to stand-up comedy or any type of comedy, you're always workshopping it. You're always practicing it. You're always changing phrases, changing words, making something tighter, you know, measuring your pauses between uh player A to player B, but I also agree that it's kind of a uh, Warshak test. Like you and I both grew up with Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies, and that is another one where you can sit someone down and they're going to see, oh, Bugs Bunny funny. But then as you mature and as you get older and you see the Chuck Jones kind of uh, just a sly aside or an innuendo or something that just gets right past you when you were young, but as an adult or older, you go, uh-huh. But I know for a fact that those brief eight to 10 minute cartoons really affected my own personal sense of humor and what I thought was funny and what I thought was smart. And, you know, I think that you, the Three Stooges go along with that, the Marx Brothers, Abbott and Costello, Looney Tunes, uh, now, could some of those Looney Tunes cartoons get made today? Uh, probably not. So that's why we have physical media and we can enjoy them unfettered, unedited, and just in perfect crystal clear color. So I like same you again. Said, that's like you said, uh, not probably not. No, no, it's not because they're not. They haven't been doing, they haven't been doing the classic Looney Tunes stuff for decades. I mean, so, mm-hmm. it's, so it's, it's not, you can drop the problem. We both know it's a definitive, <laughs> they, they ain't doing it. And I think they ain't. It, 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 I go, I've used this example before. You and I grew up watching in reruns and stuff like lost in space. Also, yeah. um, 
um, voids to the bottom of the sea. And those first seasons of each of those were family yeah. oriented. So anybody in the family could watch them. It was, it was an adventure series, which mm-hmm. everybody enjoyed. And then they look at the things and they realize all oh, the demographic. Oh, look, we got these young boys and girls, particularly boys watching these series. That's our demographic. And then they just zero in right only on that demographic and just forget the rest of the family. We're just going to focus on that. And then shortly after that, it's like those, you can look at the episodes, you can see them deteriorate to where they're enjoyable when we were growing up, but then those subsequent seasons don't hold up as well, except for nostalgia. But when you look at them, you take the glass, nostalgia glasses off, you can tell the Mm -hmm. first seasons are strong and the subsequent ones were not same thing with Looney Tunes. Those those first yeah. decades were aimed at everybody, particularly adults. And but they were I think they were aimed at adults, and then they just had them also try to hit children too. And I think with people nowadays, are like oh no no, this is for children only, and they purposely will aim low. And I think that's yeah. the problem with a lot of children's television and or what other things that are coming out, but instead, instead of reaching all the audience, like they used to do back in the day, I think they can still do that. It's shown in the past. You can do it and you can hit everybody. And every so often you get a winner out there, which is just, it hits the all the age ranges. And then you have this big boom, it's a hit. And so some of them still understand what they want to do. You want, why limit your audience when you can go for maximum money? You, men, you mentioned a show that I think really illustrates that perfectly. One of my favorites was Voice to the Bottom of the Sea. Growing up, you know, and if you look at the first couple of seasons, maybe it's just season one, possibly season two, they're black and white. They are beautiful. But it's also literally straight out of the Cold War, you know. And then all of a sudden, it got popular. and then. They started making them in color, which no objection to that. But to me, in my brain, it, everything always looks better in black and white when it comes to certain subject matter and certain shows. But then it became, I think they looked at the demographics. Boy, young boys love this. What do young boys love? Monsters. So then boys to the bottom of the sea, they kind of threw out away the Cold War era uh, parallel and uh, made it Monster of the Week. Because I can vividly remember, you know, somebody dressed in, you know, a large seaweed suit running through the sea view or trying to get into the flying sub or something like that. And it's just a shame because I would have loved for more black and white, very serious, you know, kind of Cold War. uh, You know, it's literally black and white and it's figuratively black and white where we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. and you know, maybe some submarine warfare or, you know, but also another trap that they fall into is what I call the ripped from the headlines problem where they look at what's happening around them. And instead of making it like a parallel or, you know, you can do a a metaphor or something for, let's say uh, back in the sixties, uh, the Vietnam War or drugs or something like that. But instead they take it a little bit too literally, a little bit too on the nose. And again, you fall into the trap where you were saying anyone of any age can watch it. You can pop in the DVD 20, 30 years 
because it wasn't culture-based. It wasn't ripped from the headlines. It needs to be much more, uh, for lack of a better word, generic, you know, where it crosses all uh, socioeconomic lines, all race lines. Funny is funny, as you said. Uh, but when you try to make it topical, I think that is a, uh, that's a mistake. And I think a lot of TV these days and movies these days try to be a little bit more topical, a little bit more in step or against in, uh, out of step with the times as opposed to just, is it funny? You know? Oh, obviously we are both in agreement with that area. And I think that's why certain shows so do so well in reruns and are evergreen in it. And we can use yes. a lot of classic examples, but like Gilligan's Island is still evergreen yes. and it still holds up. Love it. Abbott and Costello yes. is the same way with, again, and we're not saying everything Abbott and Costello has done, you know, that's out there. Oh goodness. No, but a lot of them are, and it's just the magic's there. A lot of Marx brothers stuff is great. Uh, I think the things, the only thing that I think that sometimes affects these movies is when they have a song in them, that sometimes could be the thing that could be a little bit of a boundary. More, I think, when the Marx Brothers, when they go into more of the operatic song, which was yeah. very popular yeah. then, it, mm -hmm. that has not yeah. aged well. I mean, I can enjoy it, but I mean, even when I was younger and I was watching that, I was like, oh, this is the time you're, you, you, you kind of go to the bathroom or do whatever. It was just Yeah, like, you look at your watch <laughs> and you go, boy, it's about time for a musical number, isn't it? Or some dancing or something like that. And yeah, agreed. Yep. And this movie, Abbott and Costello Meet Dr. Jekyll, does have a couple of musical things in them, but they're they're yeah. done for comedic value or just they're very short. Um, yes, and they're also front loaded. You know, both of them are pretty much near the opening, if the opening or near the excuse me near the opening of the film. So it's like let's get them out of the way. Let's uh, you know we need to we need to have these. You know, this was this was toward the end of a period of time where, as you and I know, as you're looking through the opening credits of a film, it'll say gowns by, you know, Vera Wang and musical numbers composed by and music by and lyrics by. And, you know, as we got into the more indie cinema in the early 60s, you know, there was a whole school of cinema that came out where, no, we're not going to have Fred Astaire come out and dance. We're not going to have Ginger Rogers. We're not, you know, that's just not the way it's done. But again, we're looking back at a, at a time where in vaudeville, in live theater and things like that, where they needed to kind of break it up a bit, but uh, no, absolutely correct. And that's one thing I, I love about this film is 76 minutes. This is a movie yes, that knows it what tight. it is and it, it yes. knows we got to keep things moving. And I think that's the best thing with a vaudeville act is you have the ebb and the flow. You got to keep the pace. Yes. And this movie does yes. good pacing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, they, they, Bud and Lou had done so many movies. They, they averaged two movies a year at their height. So if they weren't making a movie, they were promoting a movie or getting ready to make another movie. And uh, <clears throat> I think that they worked with a creative team that knew exactly who their actors were. They needed to do a little bit of casting. Okay, who can sing? Who can dance? Who's good looking and has a square jaw and can be the romantic lead of this as Button and uh, Lou do their thing? Uh, no, it, it's a, this film is exactly what it says on the tin. Uh, it's 
Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, it's Boris Karloff. You've got three names above the marquee and go. You know? Now, is it the tightest script ever? Well, no, it's an Abbott and Costello film. There's mistaken identity. There's uh, shenanigans with potions. There's uh, chases. It, it, they know what they're doing. And it's a tight, tight 76 minutes. You could take out the musical numbers and it would be less, you know, could be even, you know, closer to an hour, depending on the length of the musical numbers. But no, you're absolutely right. It's fast paced. It's tight. They get Karloff on the screen early. They set the stage. You know, uh, the only thing that I was kind of confused by, this is supposed to be during Victorian times, evidently. But then you look at the costumes, you look at what they're wearing, you look at the, the dialogue, some of the slang and things of that, the idioms. They're not quite there. So you have to kind of suspend your disbelief of it. Like, okay, this is supposed to be Victorian. Uh, why they brought Bud and Lou over as two bumbling Americans to study the British system of policing. Wouldn't you want your best guys over there learning the British system of policing as opposed to two men who are literally named Tubby and Slim? <laughs> well, I, I look at it this way. This, 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 I agree with you on that, but I'll give this film this credit. Their police chief or whoever is in charge of them in the United States, like, oh, we're tired of these guys. Let's ship them over. Let's just get them there out of go. our hair. Like, God, who can we, where can we send these two knuckleheads where they will do the least amount of damage to our country and perhaps inflict some damage on another country? Oh, let's send them to our good friends in the United Kingdom. <laughs> exactly. You know, and I think this film could have been, because the accents are, especially for the main people, are definitely American, you know, it's just, it's just, come on. Oh, they didn't even try. They didn't even try to put British accents in here. I would have preferred if they would have maybe put this in the 1920s when, and kept it in yes. the U S if they wanted to keep the line, the women's rights, the women's right to vote storyline. Yeah. They could have did that. They could have moved it to the United States. Everything yeah. else, everybody else, you know, could have played out the same. You know, you would have American players. Oh, there would have, they wouldn't have missed a beat. They wouldn't have missed a beat. I think they just wanted to keep it. You know, they had probably looked at the old Frederick March, you know, Doctor Jekyll, and well, this took place in Victorian times, so maybe you know this—that's where medicine was at the time. So let's just keep it in Victorian times. Uh, but no, they—they they wouldn't. Need, I think you're right. They wouldn't even skip a beat in the 1920s. It's still, you know, you, you could have put it in 1920s, Boston, New York, Chicago, San Francisco. Uh, I am not up on the suffragette movement, but my assumption is that perhaps it started earlier in the UK than it did in the US. And why the suffragette subplot or, trip, you know, maybe five or six plot lines down need to e needed to even be in there. I kind of question that unless they wanted a little can-can dancing at the beginning of the film. And, you know, you know, the guys on the bench kind of going, Hey, hubba hubba, you know, well, I'll give them the right to vote if they'll show me their legs occasionally. Uh, it just seemed unnecessary, but I guess you got to get in there somehow. It was an interesting way to promote your cause. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Cause when I was, I was like, very primal, they're going to sing, Oh, they're doing, um, a Rockettes type thing with the legs. I'm like, yes. what is going? Yes. I'm like, what is going on? And then all of a sudden, uh, there's a, a fight, and uh, 
and the, and oh the, yeah, and the, it's like the men versus the women, and the women give those guys what for and more. I mean, it's it, it's it, it was funny to watch, but I mean, men, th- those women just just own the guys. I mean, it was just it yes, was just, it was just sad to see these guys getting tossed all over the place, and then poor Bud and Lou. This is the thing that yes. blew my mind because I'd forgotten about them. You know, I'd seen this decades ago, and mm-hmm. here they come in as the British police, the Bobbies. And it's yep. Bud and Lou. And I'm like, what? That didn't make sense. <laughs> that, that, this team I left. And they, and they get owned by the women. Big time. And, and they're beat up by everybody. I mean, multiple times. And when they're in jail later with the women, I thought maybe. This is where I thought they were going. I thought they were say, they were going to say that Bud and Lou were there as actors. And they were on a stage thing where they were playing Bobby's were on break. And they came over to break the fight up. And they were like in there as <laughs> accused of being impersonating police. That That's where my mind was going at first. And then I realized, no, no, no. They, they really were working for the police, but not anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's very weak, you know, to be quite honest. You know, all they needed to do was have the male lead, you know, Craig Stevens, uh, or I'm sorry, ace reporter Bruce Adams, uh, meet the uh, part-time can-can girl, burlesque girl, and suffragette uh, sign holder. They just needed to have a meet-cute, and for some reason they plucked the suffragette movement. Maybe they looked in their Encyclopedia Britannica and they go, what was happening in Victorian England in the 1890s that we could kind of throw in here for some verisimilitude? And they came up with the suffragette movement. They literally could have met in the pub. They could have met at the music hall. They could have met anywhere. But we got to have the the first song starts almost immediately, about two or three minutes into the film. And uh, maybe they wanted to just get the men's attention with the stockings and the kicking high and Bud and Lou coming. I mean, it does. To, now that I'm talking it through, it does set the tone pretty quickly. It starts it immediately. We get the gist of what's going on. There's a monster, uh, you know, attacking uh, well-dressed gentlemen under the fog of night. And, you know, they're doing the whole Plan 9, Bella Lugosi, uh, chiropractor of Ed Wood's wife, where they hold the cape over their face. And we don't get a good look at the monsters, so they're keeping that hidden. So it sets the tone quickly. As, as we said earlier, it is what it says on the tin. They get in pretty quick and everything else. You just kind of frankly forget, you know, suffragette what, you know, this, what, now who cares? And for listeners wondering, we haven't talked about a plot because really the plot is Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I mean, that, that, that is the plot, but <laughs> yes, if you're, if you were doing that if, is the plot. if you were doing that five second elevator pitch, that's all you had to say. And you pretty much know, but to fill it out just a smidgen more. Yeah. Just a smidgen, as we already established sure. that, you know, Bud and, Bud and Lou play Slim and Tubby, who are two guys that are learning the British policing system to go for the film. And then they get kicked off the force, and then they have to find a way back on the force, so to speak, because they want to stay police. They want to show, they have pride, yeah. dang it. They have gumption. Boris Karloff yes. plays Dr. Yes. Henry Jekyll. Um, who has the has already developed the serum, as we already see at the beginning of the film, Mr. Hyde does the first kill. And Mr. Hyde is played by stuntman Eddie Parker. So, Boris, you see him yes. you see him as Mr. Hyde in the makeup 
when the, and the transformation parts. Yeah. But that's that's as far as he we goes. We get a little bit of the old Wolfman, Larry Talbot kind of, okay, sit in this chair and remain perfectly still. We're going to put a little bit of makeup, take a little bit of film. Put on the makeup, take a little bit of film. It's a very standard uh, transformation uh from the wolf man. I think that's the first place I saw it, but you're absolutely correct. Boris was too old for that crap by the time this movie rolled around. And even later on in the film, uh, Bud's stunt double, when he, when uh, Bud, cha- or I'm sorry, Lou changes into the monster, it's his stunt double. So no, neither star needs to sit through eight to 10 hours of makeup and filming for the transformation scene. That's true. Well, I think they said for some parts of it though, because they had to show the um, the, the, the as they're going a through little the transition. bit, yeah. So there was some makeup sitting, but I think they only had to do it once each, and then you know, then they can repurpose it. Craig Stevens mm-hmm. plays Bruce Adams, as you said, ace reporter, definitely an American reporter in Britain. I mean, there's just you feel no vibe of him at all that he is a <laughs> no, British. No. British whatsoever. <laughs> and he is smitten by Helen Westcott, who wouldn't be, um, who plays Vicki Edwards, the ward of Dr. Jekyll. And dun, dun, dun. Dr. Jekyll, of course, wants Vicki Edwards to, for his own means, his own, his own lust is there for her. Even though he's significantly older than her. He's significantly her, older. He's I've been in love with you. Yes. Since you were 12 or whatever. Since you were a child, you're exactly. going to be mine. And Bruce oh. comes in, and and just like in movie magic, within a day they're already kissing, and then I, I guess the passage of another day, he's asking, or maybe two. They're engaged. They're engaged. And five, <laughs> the way this movie is moving, they'd have a wedding of two days later, and then they'd be. Yes. And then there well, he even said, well, I guess I got to go prepare for the <laughs> wedding and you're pregnant. <laughs> yeah. But it didn't get that far. But that's the way, the, at the pace it was going, it was going fast. Exactly. If the movie had been 10 minutes longer, she would have already had a child. <laughs> well, if Dr. Jekyll wouldn't have st- stood it, uh, st- stood in mm-hmm. the way. And, and Dr. Jekyll does have a henchman played by John I'm not trying to pronounce his last name. Is it Dirks? 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 D-I-E-R-K-E-S? Dierks? Sure. Dierks. Batley. Batley, the mumbling, uh, incapable of human voice uh, assistant who just seems to have a predilection for choking people out. Who is on is also in the thing from another world as a scientist. So we know he can do dialogue, and he does an excellent job in that movie. So I just want to throw yes, him some credit. But in this movie, they just need him to wear a large white frock or jacket and... They film him, you know, from at a at a angle where it looks like he's twenty feet tall, and just need him to go around and do Doctor Jekyll's bidding and choke people out, like you know, Ace Reporter Bruce Adams, who is, you know, uh, I don't want to say cock blocking, but I'll say it anyway. It's like you know, Jekyll's just not a happy man at the beginning of the film, where Bruce is uh, skeeching a ride in his fancy carriage, and uh, you know, she's pre- Miss Vicky sitting in his lap, and Jekyll's just kind of eye rolling and, you know, he's just not a happy man that all of a sudden his ward is falling in love with a Fleet Street reporter. I want to correct you a little bit. Miss Vicky's not sitting in his lap. It's Dr. Jekyll sitting on his lap because it was a two-seater. Hey, <laughs> it's so confused. 
<laughs> Everybody in the cart is confused. Dr. Jekyll Morse. I'm sitting on the wrong damn. It's like he's on the guy's lap and he's saying to the guy, I can over, I've loved the line, something like, um, are you comfortable? You know, like, is this, and he goes, oh, I'm very comfortable. As he moves a little closer to Vicky, you know. and uh, mm-hmm. That's when we got the first Jekyll eye roll. It's like, oh, man. But that's all the players. Um, the boys find out. The boys being Slim and Tubby. Mm-hmm. They actually do figure out. Well, Tubby does figure out that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are the same one. And nobody yes. believes him, of course, because of course, it's Lou Costello. Nobody believes him. Just like in Frankenstein. Nobody you know, believes a man named Tubby. Yeah, it's, it's, mm-hmm. And it eventually goes to its ending. But, I mean, it's it's one of those things, hijinks ensue, but that's pretty much yes. the, Everything else, plot-wise, is thin as a veil all the way through. So that that is the plot, if you're wondering what we're talking about and, what, and what's going on. But I got to say, this Dr. Jekyll is probably one of the more sinister Dr. Jekylls that I've seen in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde-type films. Because usually it's always played as this goody two-shoes because he's trying to help everybody, and it's Mr. Hyde. That is the evil. Yes. But this Dr. Jekyll knows what he's doing, knows he wants to get rid of certain people. Oh, yeah. That's when we come back. We can take it back to the very beginning where he kills someone associated with the Royal College of Physicians. So I assume that Dr. Jekyll has been booted out of said organization or has an axe to grind in some other way with the uh, Royal Physician School. So he goes and he juices up and just decides to go choke him out. And I just thought it was so funny. The guy literally takes three or four steps out of a pub and there's a tuxedo top hatted caped gentleman there in the uh, alcove of a apartment. And the guy just comes up to him and like, and you're dead. And then uh, Ace Reporter comes out of the pub. Oh, there's somebody on the ground here. Let me look in his wallet. I thought he, I literally thought he was going to like roll the guy, you know, well, here's 50 quid, you know, I think I'll take that. (laughs) But that was just literally just to show us the man's calling card or his business card. And then we could go to the spinning newspapers where they go, oh, there's a monster loose. Oh, the Royal College of Physicians head killed. You know, it's very uh, tight, you know, they, they let us know that there's a monster. And then we come around to the first scene where, uh, we see what we think is a possible dead body lying in the grass of a small park. Uh, and Ace reporter being the inquisitive kind that he is goes over. He thinks it's another victim of the monster. And it's also interesting that Mr. Hyde, uh, I forget in the original book why he was called that, but it looks like all the murders are are happening in Hyde Park or in the vicinity of Hyde Park. So I guess they just kind of said, ah, Mr. Hyde, monster, sure, let's roll with it. And, of course, the man is not dead. He is merely taking a nap in the dirt. And then we segue to a uh, uh, the first musical suffragettes uh, number. So... Uh, excuse me, that's where we go there. And what I thought was interesting, well, I have to, I'm, I'm going to pick up a little later, is when Dr. Jekyll was talking about how the Dr. Poole was killed in the opening film. Yes. 
And he said it's because he scoffed at him and that kind of stuff. He deserved to, he des- he de- I deserved to kill, or he deserved to die. That's why I killed him. He goes, no, I didn't kill him. Mr. Hyde killed him. I did not kill him. That was Mr. Hyde. <laughs> and what, what's true, it is kind of like a different person. But It yet, is technically the truth, yeah. <laughs> but if you know you changed into him in order to kill the person, because he says because he, he wants to get rid of Bruce Adams because I got to give it to Bruce mm-hmm. because he's spoiling my whole plan that I've been setting up for decades to get the I've been wanting to marry Vicky. this my young ward for decades now. I've just been biding my time and waiting. And all of a sudden she's in love with the fleet street reporter. So I'm just going to choke him out as well. Yes. And so he starts juicing up to go out and get mm-hmm. him. That's what I love about this movie. Mm-hmm. This movie just keeps, instead of waiting for the night, I'm going to juice up now, get, get out there in the daytime. Nope. And then when, Oh yeah, there's no night, you know, day for night filming or anything. They just like, ah, we just got two monsters running around, uh, you know, mod, you know, London, bright sun, sunshiny day. Uh, time is of the essence, I guess, when you're a monster or are going to become a monster. You really don't, you know, you got to interrupt that romance at the earliest possible point because, like we said, uh, they kiss and twenty, you know, then at the music hall. They, they kiss and then they are engaged and then they're, I mean, it moved fast. So I guess, you know, high or Jekyll really did not have the time to burn when it came to interrupting this fast paced romance. That was really just holy mackerel people. Well, see, Dr. Jekyll, he must've had some inside knowledge about the, um, the mores of the time that man, once they meet, they kiss. The next day, they're going to get they're, they're going to get engaged. And two days later, they're married. And next thing, they know, boom, there's a baby in the oven. So he was like, "I got to, <laughs> I got to move." The timetable's already on. It, it, it's a ticking clock. <laughs> My runway is very short on this airplane, so I got to make every minute count. Go get the extra juice. Send out the mumbling henchman. I mean, I just got to pull out all the stops to getting this guy dead. And then he just really gets cranky as heck. And he's like, oh, I'm just going to kill you too. You know, if, you, if you're going to spurn my affections, I'm just going to take everybody out. I don't think he was ever going to take Vicky out. I don't think he ever was going to kill her. He just wanted to take her away. But even in Mr. Hyde form. Oh, I that's think- right. Let's go to Paris tonight. What do you say? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. We'll go there and get married. Have a honeymoon. You Everything, everything's moved fast. Everything moves fast in Victorian England. You don't want <laughs> there that- is no match. You don't want that young viral stud in Bruce. No. You want me, this old shell of a man. Come. You want old rich big daddy. And, you know, I guess everything just moves faster. And there was no match.com in Victorian England. You just met someone, wiggled your eyes a little bit. And next thing you know, you have a baby. So, yeah. Well, Vicky missed her <laughs> opportunity because if she would have married him and then, you know, something happened where he dies, she gets the money and then she still gets Bruce Adams. She, yeah, Bruce could have been the side piece, but I don't, I don't think you have Victorian side pieces. <laughs> well, this would have been that would have been a film nor thing. See, if they would have moved this into the twenties, that's the play the plot. Oh would man, Abbott and Costello meet Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde in a film nor. <laughs> oh gosh, could you imagine how dark that could be? It's like Cornell Woolrich, you know, does the script, and there's betrayal, there's alcoholism. I mean, oh man. You, you right now. You you want to see that film? <laughs> you do. I think we've just. I think we've just. You know, created a a film that everybody wants to see. You know, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde 
always knocks twice, you know, or something <laughs> like that. Well, that would make sense because it's like two different people, but you know. Exactly. Exactly. See, it's already coming together. 72 minutes later, we're done. Everybody's dead or alcoholic or in a submerged car that's run off a bridge or something. Or, or, or you know, the, the, the femme fatale gets away with it and, and some poor sap suffers the, um, you know, goes down the drain, which would be Lou Castello's character. Yes. She, she set somebody up to take the elect. We have to have an electric chair scene too, I think, in these type of movies. There needs to be some sort of prison time or, you know, waiting for the governor to call and reprieve you. Now that Miss Vicky has set up, uh, you know, I think I think we would set up Bud. I don't think I don't. Lou could be a patsy, but I think Bud may be the 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 choice to set up for our prison scene. But you know, Lou may be good in a prison scene too. You know, maybe he's you know fumbling around the jail cell or having trouble attaching the electric chair uh, diodes and things of that nature. So. I think we're onto something here, Steve. I think we're really onto something here. I think we are too. And uh, we'll, we'll, we don't want to say anymore because we don't want people to steal our work. Dang it. That's right. That's right. That's right. We need to sign up for the writer's guild of America immediately. Well, you're, you're a writer. We can have you write it and, and just give, just give me, um, you know, like one of those credits, you know, on the book. Okay. There we go. There we go. <laughs> I don't want the, I don't want royalties or anything. I just want I just want the credit on the book. You know, help, story helped. With, sure. You know, whatever. You know, it's yeah. You know, sure. Some, sure. Some idiot helped me. You know, with, with some of that stuff. <laughs> also starring. <laughs> <laughs> story from a from a story idea by. <laughs> there we go. Story idea. Uh, story up idea. But no, the, the movie had some interesting things because there was more than one transformation scene. For yes. Tubby, Tubby also got mousy during it because yes. he drank the thing and turned into the giant mouse, which led to yes. some interesting humor at the bar and and, and hijinks there. And I, I actually got to give credit for the for this type of movie. They actually did have a, a decent mouse costume, you know, type thing because the nose they did. wiggled absolutely and stuff like that. It was pretty good. The art direction and the costumes are really on point. I I, I agree with you there. And I, you got to love his line when Tubby says, how do you like that Dr. Jekyll? He turned me into a mouse, the rat. <laughs> and then, you know, you ha they go to the pub. And, of course, Bud is distracted and not looking at Lou. And he doesn't have any type of peripheral vision to notice that his partner has been turned into a large suit-wearing mouse. And the two drunks on the on, on the stools next to them, they're doubting their own sanity, and Bud's poo-pooing them, and it, it's really nice. It, it 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 is. It's an Abbott and Costello movie. So, and the bartender, of course, you know, looks at him at first, then has to put his glasses on, looks at him, and leaves, and all that stuff. And <laughs> and, I mean, and you have to suspend a little disbelief because it. I mean, it's comedy. It goes. There you go. Tubby doesn't realize he's turned into a mouse, even though he's seen his hands. There's no way he would have missed that his hands had turned. But yet, that is the first thing he notices after Bud realizes it, or Slim realizes it, and passes out. He's like, why? And he's, he's trying to wake Slim up, and then he sees his hands, and then he looks up in the mirror behind the bar, and then he passes out and changes back. 
So, and, and that's when they know it's like, he can change people. He can do this and that. So it's, they, they figure things out. So I got to give the two of them credit. Unlike in some other movies, they actually do figure out what's going on. <laughs> yes. They're pretty quick on the uptake, you know, but then again, this is, you know, 72 minutes. So there's not a lot of uh, time for them to ruminate or guess or come out with hypothesis. There, you know, once you see the Mr. Hyde parkour up the side of the music hall to go up into the dressing rooms and things of that nature, it's kind of on after that. It is. And, and I, we both said we like that the movie keeps moving. Yeah. Also, I thought it was interesting that when Dr. Jekyll realizes that Toby can knows that he's both. And so he, he has the boys stay tonight at his place as hired security. <laughs> he was he was of a very nervous disposition that night. Oh, all this talk of a monster has gotten me so frightened. Which I will give you each five pounds if you would be so kind as to stay under my roof tonight. And of course, Bud, who's you know the financial genius of the couple, uh, takes this you know accepts that offer immediately. So now we get now we kind of veer into kind of you know hold that go store. Uh, earlier Abbott and Costello kind of haunted house movies where they're exploring it, you know, hidden doors, uh, hidden laboratories. Uh, it kind of, you know, they always stay in their wheelhouse of what made Abbott and Costello movies good. And part of that is exploring the haunted house or an unfamiliar place in this, you know, in this instance, it's Dr. Jekyll's huge, huge, huge house that only he lives in he and the mute mumbling assistant who you know i guess sleeps on a cot downstairs in the hidden laboratory and uh it's just you know they they stay in their wheelhouse they know uh, let's get a little haunted house action or mistaken identity or hidden doors or whatever so again perfect no no quibbles with this part and I have to, I, I have to find it interesting is that when Tubby or Lou finds out about the basement, finds out about the hidden laboratory, and then he comes up and yeah. he gets slim. He's like, "Dirt!" And, and they're all talked to Doctor Jekyll in the um, library or study where the hidden entrance is, and he's saying, "There's a hidden entrance," and he goes, "No, there's not." And Doctor Jekyll, "Well, yes, there is. There is a whole laboratory down there. I'll take you to see it." And I'm just that was the part that actually surprised me when you think about it because you'd think he's he's gonna say it's not or have a switch that he can throw that locks the door the hidden door so that lou can't push it open and so it's one of those things i'm thinking that he's not going to be able to get in there and yet he is you know because dr jekyll tells him up front there is a hidden laboratory there is all this and which totally took me by surprise mm -hmm. uh yeah and also, it's funny later on when, you know, they managed to convince Ace Reporter to come take a look and they, you know, go, well, you know, we've been told that there's a uh, hidden laboratory. So they, you know, J again, Jekyll's like, well, there's not a hidden laboratory, but you're more than welcome to go look in my basement. And you think, oh, well, the gig is up. You know, he's going to go down there and start experimenting on Ace Reporter. But no, somehow he probably talked, you know, mumbling assistant 
just go down there and hide everything or there, you know, for some reason within a matter of, you know, an hour or two, who knows, time is very fluid in this movie when it comes to the timeline. But now it's just, well, there's old dusty bottles of wine and there's, uh, you know, the wine cellar and there's tarps and there's crates and there's no hidden laboratory down there. Again, they, they play against type to a degree where, he admits there's a laboratory. He brings them down there. You know, he admits that there's something down there to everybody else, but he's managed to cover his tracks in such a way uh, that Bud and Lou just come across as, you know, as they want to do as bumbling policemen. So, again, they're playing against type a little bit here, which I think is fun. Oh, I agree. It's definitely fun. And it was interesting to see what was going on and how it was all happening. And I thought it was also interesting when they had their final confront, not their final confrontation, but the confrontation in the study where um, the gun comes in, Bately comes in with the gun and you have um, Slim trying to wake up Vicky. You have Bruce fighting with Dr. Jekyll um, and that kind of thing in there. And so he's having the little fisticuffs. Cause I actually, no, I'm sorry. Bruce is fighting with Mr. Hyde and, you know, going through one of the things I liked was when, um, Dr. Jekyll turns back into Mr. Hyde and yeah. he's got Vicky Bruce breaks back in and comes in. The boys come back up from the laboratory and yep. the syringe was in the scuffle is thrown into the couch. In the- Seat cushions, yes. <laughs> and you know, you know, it's it's going to happen to somebody sooner or later where they're going to get the um, uh, the juice in the butt, so to speak. It's, it's just a matter of when, and we all Phrasing. pretty much know who. I mean, anybody's watching Abbott and Costello movie, you know who's going to get it. Sure. But it and, and and that is the that is the most awkwardly phrased sentence that I have heard. <laughs> somebody's going to get juiced in the butt. Well, here we go. It's Lou. <laughs> Not just once, and, but multiple times. <laughs> yes, and so now we've got dueling monsters. But just before we have the dueling monsters, I thought it was interesting. You have Bately come in with the gun, and you have him about to shoot Bruce because he's fighting with Mister Hyde. Mm-hmm. And Slim, I gotta give credit. He does this kick. It kicks the gun out of Bailey's hands, and of course, it goes straight to Bruce's hands, and um, that's and of course that's how Bailey exits because of the use of the gun when they're fighting over it, that kind of thing. But I thought, like, man, this is one of the few times you see Bud, you know, doing his things where it's actually like the guys are doing something proactive. You always see him in the background, but usually they're not the main guys. No, especially Bud. Bud is usually looking out for Bud, and he's trying to avoid fisticuffs, and he's trying to avoid any type of confrontation or wrinkling of his suit, and he kind of throws, you know, uh, Lou into the mix. But, you know, kicking a gun out of someone's hand and having it land in someone else's hand, that's some Quentin Tarantino kind of ultra kung fu, you know, Shaw Brothers violence going on there, which is funny. Now, you and I are of, of, a, of a certain age, and so was yeah. Bud Abbott yeah. at that time. And I, I, I can speak for myself. I might be speaking for you, too. Even though I've taken Taekwondo in the past and that kind of stuff, 
I always would joke with somebody. It's like, yeah, before I fight you, give me a few minutes to warm up because I don't want to pull something. Um, now, mm-hmm. now Slim didn't have a chance to warm up. So I know with him doing that kick and the actor being six foot six, this is a high kick, you know, because even mm-hmm. though he's holding the gun, I'm sure he was feeling that, you know, later <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah. It's like he needs to ice something down or put a heating pad or take some ibuprofen or shut down shooting for a day or two to rest his, uh, his groin muscles or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, instead he ends up running around town, as you said, when now we have the shortly after this, we have the two monsters and each of them go after their own respective Mr. Hyde, so to speak. And, um, yeah, Slim's going after the tubby version. And of course, Bruce yeah. Adams is going after the, the real one. Yes. And, I don't want to, you know, people. I don't want to give away the ending all the way, but I will say there is this nice rooftop sequence where all four of them are up there around this yes. square type thing on the roof, and it's almost like a greenhouse or something like that, where it's up on the roof, and you've got them. You you have a nice top down view, like what we would call today, like a drone shot, mm-hmm. looking down on the roof. And you've got the uh, square building. It may be a fire exit or some some stairway to get up on the roof. But they kind of start walking around it. And you've got somebody knocking someone else on the head. And then you've got them avoiding it. it it's nice. It's, it's a nice little uncommon shot that you probably just didn't see a lot, especially in an Abbott Costello movie. It's a nice visual representation of the confusion that's going on. And I liked it. I, I thought it was it was set yeah, up well. They, they came up individually, and they all went to their respective spots. They all came up from different sides and went to their area. And it, it was just yeah. Whether it was a crane shot or or if it was in a studio, maybe it was a ceiling shot. It was done well. You know, mm-hmm. I, I like to give credit yeah. to cinematography because it's not one of the things we normally talk about in an Abbott and Costello movie. Is no, it? no. You know, the unsung heroes, you know, are the makeup men, uh, the cinematographers, the director of photography, you know, and even the screenwriters. You know, this is a tight script. It's they, they stayed in their wheelhouse. They knew it was Abbott and Costello. They knew they needed to hit certain beats and they knew that they that the plot, for lack of a better word, was elastic. Yes. And I thought the acting was, was well, you know, I mean, there, there was not really anything that was bad with anything. Nothing, nothing was really stellar. It was done well. I think the only actor we didn't really talk about is Reginald Denny, who played the inspector. And he, you, mm-hmm. you know, and of course he had, he's the one dealing with Slim and Tubby, Dud and Lou. And you can see the exasperation on his face, especially mm-hmm. when there's the two monsters running around and he's getting calls. No, oh, the monster's over here. The monster's <laughs> over there. Yes. And he runs out yes, of Yes, he's got multiple monster sightings. And, you know, I guess there's only so many bobbies in that square mile that they can, you know, have to spread the force pretty thin. But, uh, yeah, great. The only one that, uh, you know, I was very surprised to see, frankly, Craig Stevens, uh, you know, Peter Gunn is one of those DVD sets that's on my, you know, kind of bucket list. I would love to watch the entire Peter Gunn series because, again, if, if something's going to be noir, uh, Peter Gunn, as far as television is concerned, comes really close. And you may have to correct me. I'm not sure where this movie is. Is this 
prior to Peter Gunn? Is this during Peter Gunn? Is this post Peter Gunn? I think it's definitely not post Peter Gunn, but uh, well, Peter Gunn came I mean, out in the sixties, right? So uh, that's what I think too. I think it was a sixties television show. So this was prior to Peter Gunn, but you know, he'll always be Peter Gunn. You know, you can dress him up and call him a fleet street reporter, but dude, this is Peter Gunn. Yeah. Peter Gunn started in 1958. So it it was three seasons. So it was late fifties into the sixties. And for the listeners that want to watch the show, Mm -hmm. it's available on Pluto TV. Is it? Oh man, I have Pluto TV and Amazon prime. So there you go. So all right. Problem solved. So, if, if, but as Phil and I both know, and a lot of listeners to this show know, just because it's available there now doesn't mean it'll be available there down the road. So if, yes. you, have, if you own the DVD or the Blu-ray version of something, you always can pretty much watch it at will. It is by putting yes. it on your TV. So that's the one nice thing about physical media is you don't have to worry about, is it streaming? And do I have yes. to pay for it? <laughs> Yes. Or can they, here's the thing too, they can, can they take it away from me? And, you know, this has happened time and time again, where people have quote purchased something from Amazon. And if they lose the rights, if they forget to renew the contract, if they decide to edit certain music out or certain offensive statements out, uh, it's going to be tampered with. But I, I know a lot of monster kids, you know, I used to have a lot of listeners to my podcast and they always go with physical media, always buy the Blu-ray, always support the publishers uh, uh, that are coming out with these restored Blu-rays and DVDs. Cause if you support them by buying the physical media, you will always have it. It'll always be there. You can always pop it in your player and no one can take it away from you. So I always, always encourage folks to buy physical media. Oh, I do too. And I always put it to this way, you know, like for, pe- for people, if it's available streaming and you're not sure if you want to own it or not, then, you know, stream it. And if you enjoy it, then purchase it, you know, and that way you can get the best of both worlds. You can try it out. And if you like it or love it, then obviously it's something you might, and you want to add, then purchase there it you go. because it supports the people that are putting these out, especially independent filmmakers that are out there doing their low or no budget type things. And people are like, Oh, I can stream it. Well, they get just literally pennies if that per stream, or you can, Mm -hmm. so I, to watch that, give them their couple of pennies that way. And if you enjoy it, buy their DVD or Blu-ray, they get much more to help them with their next production. So it's, it's, it encourages them. (laughs) Yes. It encourages them to do more. Like we always say, you know, catch somebody doing something good. And if, if you know, uh, if somebody's putting out Blu-rays like Shout Factory or somebody like that, if they're putting out DVDs and Blu-rays and restored versions that you love, pick it up. Because also, even physical media can go out of print, for lack of a better term, because I've missed out on a couple of box sets, like uh, the original uh, Peter Cushing or Vincent Price box set that was put out a couple of years ago. That thing got snapped up immediately and there's no plans on reissuing it or doing another box set. So you really have to kind of jump on it uh, when you can. Uh, one public service that our close friends, you know, common friends, uh, Richard Chamberlain and Jeff Owens do over on the Classic Horrors Club podcast 
is each show, each month, they will tell you what physical media is coming out or what Kickstarters are going on. So you can kind of keep as a monster kid or someone who's into that, you can kind of keep your finger on the pulse of what's coming out. And I've even heard them kind of bemoan the fact that they didn't purchase something when it first came out. So it's definitely something you want to keep in mind. Definitely. And as listeners on our show know, there's been a lot of independent filmmakers on here and I, I can't say, you know, enough to about supporting them as I already mentioned yes. and helping them out. And there's one movie that I had an interview with the director and actor in it, Michael Wirth. And it's the movie Appleseed. It came out in 2019. I didn't see it till I think 2020. And it was the best movie I saw that year. It's a buddy picture, travel picture with Rance Howard in his last film, um, co-starring with Michael Wirth. So it's, it's Rance is like the lead actor and, and Michael Wirth is the, the, the buddy with him. And they go across the country and it's about the different people they encounter at their different stops. And it's just a well-made movie, very good movie, totally different than the movie we're talking about now. But it recently became available in physical media um, just before mm -hmm. um, December of 2023. So for listeners out there, it's you can get it on Amazon, and I highly, highly recommend that film. And also, again, it helps support him to put out more work independently and, and, and things along those lines. It's an ex excellent film. Yes. And, you know, people like Ansel and people like Joshua – uh, you definitely want to support them because they're out there, you know, doing Godzilla's work and putting out, you know, a uh, product that we really want to support. Correct. And um, so overall, what did you think of Abbott and Costello meet Je Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Uh, it's not going to be going on any of my top five lists, but I think that, uh, as you and I mentioned earlier, uh, we usually got our Abbott and Costello movies on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon, depending on what package had been sold. And for it, it's, it's definitely, I would say, a top 10 Abbott and Costello based on the sheer number of movies that they cranked out. Uh, but I, I like it. It's fun for a Saturday afternoon. You know, pop some popcorn. You know, put your feet up on the couch, uh, watch Bud and Lou do their thing. Uh, they hit all the marks. It is it is it has all the hallmarks and uh, tropes that an Abbott and Costello movie has, and that's why you watch it. You're not going to watch it because you know it's going to displace the Godfather or Citizen Kane uh, off of the AFI Top 100, but it's a Bud Abbott and Lou Costello movie. We get to see Boris Karloff. He's relaxed. You know, granted, this is prior to his, you know, Mexico years when he was doing movies. Uh, we get to see Karloff chew a little scenery. He's Karloff. It, 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 that alone should get you into this movie. It's Bud. It's, it's Lou. It's Boris Karloff. Uh, you can't go wrong. Uh, is it as good as Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein? Not even close. But it's a fun meat movie, and that's the only reason you should really go into it because 
it's, it's fun. That's it. Like we said, is, is it fun? Is it funny? Yes. All right. We're in. Oh, I agree with you. It's, 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 it's a solid Abbott and Costello movie. It's not as good as Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which is like one of the high bars of movies mm-hmm. out there. Uh, but I mean, it, it'd be unfair to compare it to that because that's, that's like one of the, the best horror comedies ever. It's always going to be in yes. most people's top 10 list. And so yes. this, this movie is solid. It, if you like that movie, you will enjoy this movie. It's lesser than, but most sequels to a, a, to a type of movie are, you know, they're not going to be as good as the, the first one that came out usually. And this one is hard to find on streaming. So, you know, I was looking at, the, it's not available anywhere as we're recording for free on streaming. This goes back to physical media. Um, you there know, you go. So there you, you were, go. You could look at it. It's like, well, I only had to pay this to rent it. But what if you want to watch it again down the road? Mm-hmm. Well, if you own it, you know, then you have it. And uh, and, and that kind of, it wasn't, it, it, I, I think I did see it available for paying to rent it. It wasn't cheap. It was something like $6, $8. It was, it was up there at least at one of the spots. So at that point, you're, you're almost, you're, you're either buying, you can buy the DVD version or halfway there, mm-hmm. depending on what, yeah. what the availability is. I have it on an Abbott and Costello meet the monsters for um, four movie set. So it's two discs, two DVDs. Each one has a movie. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, mm-hmm. Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, Abbott and Costello meet the mommy. And I think it's the last one's Abbott and Costello meet the killer also with Carlo. Mm-hmm. Also with Boris. Yeah. Yeah. So, or if you've got the huge, huge Abbott and Costello collection box set, then you've got everything. I'm sure there's some clunkers in there, but you know, it's Abbott and Costello and, you know, you can plunk it in the good ones, you know, time of our lives, buck privates, gay nineties, things of that nature. You can plunk any one of those stellar Abbott and Costello movies in and just ignore the rest. And I think this is a solid movie to watch going for my nostalgia things. Like you and I said earlier, I, I look at this, if it's a Saturday or Sunday mm-hmm. and it's raining, this is this was when you and I were kids. We weren't outside. There it was you go. Raining. It was bad weather. What did you watch? You watched what was on TV. Yes. And so to me, just yes. because of that, if it's a rainy day, this is a nice movie to put in. And if it's like we're recording this in December, this is coming out in January of 2024. And yes. this is a perfect thing if it's raining outside, you to get yourself a, I, I call it, I, I used this example once before. You get a couple of grilled cheese sandwiches, a bowl of tomato soup, and <laughs> get a blanket around your legs. Oh, man. You stick in Abbott and Costello, meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and you just yeah. have yourself a nice good old time with comfort food. Comfort movie, comfort food. There you go. That is like the ultimate comfort package right there. Absolutely. Agreed. And speaking of comforting, it's nice to have you finally do this. It's like, ah, I can, I feel that relief of pressure because way back in an episode, (laughs) listeners of it's a mad, 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 mad world. Bill was one of the original contributors. I was, I was due to, if you listen to the episode, I think you hear us talk about Bill, um, what happened. My son was doing the editing and putting that, yeah. that, that together. And that thing is a mammoth episode. It is 
a lot of contributors, a lot of different moving parts, so to speak. And somehow, some way. I trusted your son. I trusted your son. Because I had like a good 10 or 15 minute uh, in my own inimitable style. I did a really good piece on Jonathan Winters. And uh, I was so saddened that that, you know, I, I thought that Ben had downloaded the MP3 and I didn't keep my work files. But, uh, oh, boy, that's a regret. I wish I could have been part of that show. But uh, Only two yeah, people yeah. got to hear that Jonathan Winters part. I did. And Bill, who made it. And it was, it was yeah. excellent. You can take my word for it. It was excellent. Um, and, and I said to Bill, I, I apologize so much. And that's when I said, you got to have you on the show. And that's what <laughs> Bill was doing. As he already said, um, the, the movies by the minute and the mummy was the first yeah. one. And he picked that mm-hmm. and listeners trying to get Bill from his busy schedule of doing lots of different charity work and other stuff. Yeah. It is hard. I'm not really in the podcasting world anymore. Yeah. Yes. But his podcast is still out there. Bill watches movies. So it's still there. Yeah. So if you want to listen to it, it's, it's nice takes on movies where Bill goes through and it's kind of like, um, not saturated. Mystery, very mystery science theater. It's, I just kind of tell the story in a, or what I thought was a funny way. Uh, it's an acquired taste at best, but my assumption is that, that most uh, of your audience is probably uh, Bill watches movies adjacent. So they may know about me. They may know about the show, but uh, I, I absolutely am so happy and so glad that we finally got together. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in July at Monster Bash. Uh, any other Monster Kids out there or listeners, we would love to see you. We would love to hang out with you. Uh, I know that uh, Mary uh, Rotolo from the B Movie Cast is going to make a uh, Elvis-like appearance that uh, that convention. I know Rich and Jeff from uh, Classic Horrors Club, Rod Barnett of the Rod Barnett Podcasting Cinematic Universe. That guy does more podcasts than I have fingers and toes. So uh, I would definitely invite everyone to come out and see Steven and myself and the rest at Monster Bash this year. And as always, if you see us there, come up and talk to us about movies. Obviously, that particular one, it'll be monster movies like this, a classic type. We will talk about any movies. (laughs) We'll start with monster movies and then go from there. Yeah, It can be any type of movie. And which is the whole reason this podcast is set up for all the genres because why limit yourself to one genre when you can have any genre. And I think what is paraphrasing a Vincent Price quote, you know, why limit your interest? You know, you know, if you limit your interest, you limit your life. There you go. I think that's how it goes. If not, I'm sure, sure. some listener will correct me. I was trying to go off the top of my head, so I wasn't <laughs> looking it up. And, and of course, Victoria oh, Price. Oh, they'll let you know. Yeah, Victoria Price will be at this, this year's Monster Bash in July. Mm-hmm. But Bill, yeah. thanks again. I'm glad to finally get your velvet, velvetry voice here, so people can actually hear <laughs> my NPR, good my NPR that. voice. Yes, I would love to come back anytime. I would love to roll the dice and see what genre we come up with. Maybe venture outside the uh, monster kid uh, genre, and maybe some good science fiction, good drama, good comedy. 
uh, now that we've kind of uh, broken the ice between us and I've got one show under my belt, we'll see how the folks respond to it. And if you would like for me to come back, I am always available for you. Well, you're always, you're already welcome to come back and we will roll the dice again. And I don't care whether everybody listens to it or not. I don't need numbers. <laughs> I just need to know that you and I had a good time and that's all that really matters yes. in the end. And yes. everybody else loves it. That's just icing on the cake, you know, the cherry on top of a Sunday, whatever analogy you want to use. I want to thank yes. you again for joining me on the show. Thank you so much, Stephen. Uh, I know you've got some trials ahead of you. Know that I love you. Know that uh, I will always be here for you. You've always been a constant friend and a companion. I love you dearly, and please take good care of yourself. Uh, listeners, please give, please keep Stephen in your prayers if you are so inclined. Uh, he's a good man, and we always want him and the DieCast podcast here to be available for us and treating us to new things. So thank you again, sir. Well, thank you. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that episode. We would like to thank Bill for joining us again. Please send any feedback to the Diecast Movie Podcast at gmail.com or leave us a message on our Facebook page. Now, in the episode, Bill referred to my dad's health uh, during the end of the episode. And a quick update, he is doing well and recovering from bypass surgery. Sadly, during the operation, his vocal cords were damaged, so while he is on the mend, Ben and I will be recording the openings and closings. Fortunately, my dad pre-recorded multiple episodes prior to his surgery. I hope you all enjoyed this episode and stay tuned to see which movie we'll pick next.